Welcome to a special season of Outside Inside Radio. I'm your host, Kathy Foley-Meyer, and for this season, we will be interviewing writers who contributed to the recently published book, The Sentences That Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison. The book is part of PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Initiatives. PEN America describes itself as, quote, a nationwide community of writers and literary professionals, as well as devoted readers and supporters who join with them to carry out PEN America's mission. PEN America advocates for writers under threat worldwide and public policies that bolster freedom of speech and offers platforms to lift up the work and views of those whose voices have too often gone unheard or been ignored. Today, I'm speaking with John J. Lennon and Shaheen Pasha. Both John and Shaheen are involved in projects related to the art and craft of journalism. John has published articles in Esquire, New York Magazine, The Atlantic, and Sports Illustrated. And in 2020, his story, The Apology Letter, appeared in the Washington Post Magazine's special prison issue, which won a National Magazine Award. Shaheen is an assistant professor at Penn State University and the co-founder and co-executive director of the Prison Journalism Project. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm going to start with John, who is on the phone with us from a correctional facility. Um, John, can you tell our audience a little bit about your journey to becoming a journalist? I'm interested to know when you first knew that you had a voice that could affect people. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having us on. I got a, sort of arrested in 2002 and eventually I was convicted. And it wasn't until I was convicted and sentenced to an aggregate term of 28 years to life. And, you know, I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't too bright out of ninth grade education and mm-hmm. I was involved in a lifestyle of selling drugs and eventually I, I killed a man and regretfully and, and I uh, and I went away to prison and along the way you bump your head in the beginning and then eventually I, I landed in uh, Attica, which isn't the most progressive uh, prison. <laughs> I was taking correspondence courses and I, and I found one of the clerks in a relatively deserted school building in Attica. Uh, sometimes you take these like proctored exams when uh, my mother was paying for the courses, uh, correspondence courses. And, and this clerk was like, hey, we have a, a creative writing workshop. So I joined the creative writing workshop. And uh, it was interesting. Was I was taking an, interest, taking an English course and I had gotten like a C on the English course. It was <laughs> women's literature. And and this and this professor gave me like this really biting red ink on the page. You know, it was like, do they have dictionaries in there? Or, you know, it's, you know, compliment is with an E, not with an I. You know, when you're using it. In this, I was just like, oh, geez, this guy's a little much. It was just like, so I was like, down there, I was kind of like commiserating with the guy and the, and the proctor was actually a, you know, he's a, he worked for corrections you know, he, he kind of signed me up and the student here his clerk signed me up for the creative writing course which was kind of like on a lark this guy Doran Larson came in and he was from a pretty prestigious college and he came in and taught us uh, he just taught us he was a creative writing workshop and we mm-hmm. read the best American essays and we just it was a time it was around 2010 just to root root in the chronology of it right. yeah I just that's when I started learning what good writing looked like on the page you know in 2013 I think this I, I got pretty lucky I landed my first piece in the Atlantic my career kind of took off from there was that the gun control piece it was yeah oh, yeah it was okay. kind of like an op-ed um it was this terrible tragedy at the time yeah I reread yeah. that the other day and honestly I got kind of depressed <laughs> Because you wrote that 10 years ago. And I mean, do you think from where you sit that we're ever going to change the gun culture at all in our country? It's interesting that you asked that, Kathy. I had written a couple pieces after that. I remember my instructor saying, like, are you going to be the gun guy? I was like, are you going to write about other things? Because that ain't true. Like, it's just, you know, you kind of think when they hear how easy it was for me to get guns, like, they're going to do something about this because they, they just yeah. don't know. And I'm going to let them know. They know. And it's just indifference and it's apathy and it's cultural and it's, it's, it's a lot of things. And, you know, eventually it's sad. You, you learn, you, you play your part. I played my part and I played a terrible part in it. But you reflect on it and, and eventually as a journalist, you, 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 you have to pivot. And I have. And so, yeah, it is depressing. Yeah, because what strikes me also about your writing is that when you write about your interaction with others, you're not afraid to point out your own human foibles. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that just sort of a stylistic thing or do you kind of advocate yeah. for people to do that in general when they write or? I'm a 
first person journalist. Mm -hmm. I think Vivian, Vivian Gornick calls it personal journalism. Other folks call it, uh, gonzo journalism. I think, and look, I'm a guy who came to prison and, you know, I took another man's life and then I found myself as a, as a writer. So you're publishing from prison and you find yourself fortunate enough to be in mainstream magazines. You know, people get to stumble upon your writing and be like, wait, this guy's, this guy's in prison? And you, know, you could be writing about, you know, prison gardening and they're going to want to know, what do you do? Like, you know, so you, you right. have to, you, you have to sort of like feed the beast with that. But more so, I think you want to be a trusted narrator. And, you know, writing helps me uh, become accountable for killing a man. And uh, because I've been in prison 20 I've been, been incarcerated 22 years. And if you ask me, has anybody that worked for any for the Department of Correction ever said, hey, like, what do you do with what you did? I would tell you that nobody's ever asked me that. I mean, through writing, I've, I've found um, sort of a self-discovery and that includes accountability. And I think the reader, I would, I would, I would hope, yeah, no, I, I certainly did. I found it sort of startling almost because I sort of feel like writing is also a way, it's a way to uncover things about yourself, but it's also a way to kind of hide things about yourself as well. And with journalism, I was just, this is actually a question for both of you, because I was just reading a review of the memoir of the journalist Janet Malcolm that she finished just before she passed away. And she has a quote from her book on Jeffrey McDonald, where she says, Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is kind of a confidence man, preying on people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness, gaining their trust, and betraying them without remorse. And I want to know what both of you think about that. Is that something you agree with? I mean, I can jump in with that. I think that to a certain level, yeah, I think that when we come in, we have to sort of, we are going there with a perspective of trying to get these stories out. Where I feel like it can wind up being harmful or even negative and in the way people look at it is that people do wind up trusting a journalist and they don't always understand the end game for a journalist is to allow for these stories to go out for individuals to be able to learn from them, you know, make judgments, be in someone's life. I think what often happens, especially as a journalist, because I've been a journalist for um, over 20 years, and now I teach journalism, uh, both to incarcerated writers, but also to um, young students at the university. I think a lot of times what isn't always clear is when people are doing journalism, people are doing interviews, for instance, the other person develops a relationship with the journalist. And that's important because you want to be able to get that truth out. But at the end of that day, that relationship kind of does move on because a journalist has to move on to another story. And I think for the subject of a story, oftentimes it can be um, troubling to not continue that relationship or not really fully understand that there's a reason for this relationship, that it's a professional relationship. And I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is truth to that. I feel like also with the work that you know we're doing at Prison Journalism Project, where we are teaching incarcerated writers to tell their own stories and to tell the stories of individuals in their facilities, that we make, we try to really make that clear that they need to understand what their responsibility is and that they need to inform the individuals who they are interviewing that this is what this purpose is and that, you know, stories are, are going to be out there. People are going to read them. People are going to judge them. We don't have control over that. And it's not about um, necessarily making somebody take your side. Sometimes people are going to read a story and, you know, still dislike you. And that's part right. of that's part of the journey. But I think a lot of times people don't really understand that. And I think especially when you're behind bars and, you know, you always hope that your story is going to go out there and people maybe are going to see you differently and some people won't. I think it, it can be a little bit, um, I don't know if it's traumatizing, but troubling. And yeah. so we try to make sure that, you know, we're at least trying to get our writers when they are doing that, when they're telling stories beyond just their own personal story, that they really take that into account and understand the whole concept of consent and informed consent in the work that they're doing. And John, what about you? Is that something you agree with? Well, the, the line that you just referenced is the opening line to The Journalist and the Murderer. Right. right? It's, the mo it's my favorite book, right? Oh, so okay. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 about that that book has three layers, right? Mm -hmm. So it's Janet Malcolm, who's interestingly, this was published in uh, 1990, I believe, or 
Uh, it was a two-part New Yorker essay, and it made right. it to the journalist and the murder. I think 1980. I think. Anyway, my publicist just got me like the first edition of it for for Christmas. But <laughs> but the, the, so the book has has three layers, and she's sort of analyzing Joe McGinnis, who uh, who's a you know, famous writer in right. the seventies. I read I read his books. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's about. Uh, he writes a book about Jeffrey McDonald who killed his family and he mm-hmm. sort of uh, sort of sits with the defense and Jeffrey McDonald was bailed out at the time and this was uh, this was in the late 70s and and he and he sort of ingratiates himself with Jeffrey McDonald and sort of you know drinks beers with him throws darts with him judges women with him one to five and then McDonald gets convicted and and then Joe McGinnis writes Fatal Vision, and uh, it, it, there's a contract with between them. And then he's totally lambastes McDonald, calling him a psychopath, and he's saying that I can't. You know, when he was convicted, he's like, I can't believe the jury convicted you. And then, so, so, so the, the premise at the center of that book is that is it okay to tell your subject an untruth, right? As a journalist, is it is that's 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 what the, that's what's at the heart of it. So, and 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 what. Janet Malcolm is doing is she's writing a book about essentially journalistic ethics. Is it okay to tell your subject an untruth to get the story? And so that's why she comes out with those lines at the beginning because she's kind of like, you know, sort of judging her uh, colleagues, all journalists, and saying, come on, you know what you're doing. And uh, and we know know what we're, we're all doing here. You know, it's interesting because, you know, one of my favorite writers is Emmanuel Career, and he wrote, he's a French writer, and he wrote The Adversary, and he's a first-person journalist. And he he actually agrees, you know, he, he disagrees with, with Malcolm, and he believes there is a way that you can do it with, with class, and you don't have to sort of uh, lie to your subject and he and he i think he does that well in the adversary he's another guy in, in france in, he's a french guy right. uh, he wrote about a french serial killer but yeah i mean this is a I, we could do a whole podcast on the sort of unpacking janet malcolm she's part of my book i'm writing a book you know called the tragedy of true crime and right. i'm sort of taking on this whole idea of uh of how we sort of treat subjects because in America, the same thing that's going on with criminal justice, in the same era of criminal justice reform, is true crime. And yeah. in true, with true crime, I think it does a disservice, the stories we tell about true crime in America around the same time that we're having uh, a lot of traction with criminal justice reform. But again, we could have a yeah, we conversation could. about that. Yeah, no, I was just generally thinking about the idea of getting to the truth through an untruth and whether that was actually possible. Can you... Can you actually do that? And it's not a question I have the answer to, but I am curious about it. I think you can do that. The point comes down to, um, you know, whether you should and, you know, whether that is at the heart of what journalism is. And I think, you know, I, I teach ethics. I teach journalism ethics. And I, I love using that as an example because I think it really comes down to there's lots of ways to get a story, especially from stories from communities that are traditionally not talked about or have um, lots of layers of trust, you know, that that you need to reach through. Yes, you can, you know, ingratiate yourself into that community, make promises, and you're going to get some really great stuff. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to should you? I mean, is that story, is that truth that you're trying to get worth the damage that you may be doing, um, both as uh, to a person, but also as an industry, as a journal from a journalistic integrity standpoint. So I think you absolutely can, but I mean, I'm going to fall more on the, the line of maybe you shouldn't, maybe as journalists, we have a responsibility to do better. Yeah. I think with, especially with underserved communities, because when you talk to people who aren't accustomed to being seen and they reveal themselves to you yeah. and you have that human to human connection, when that light goes away and they return to the category of not necessarily being seen, that's painful. It's very painful. Absolutely. But on the other hand, the being seen part could also be empowering to the point where they feel empowered to make their own voices heard on their own terms, you know, literally by themselves. So, which is where I think all of the, you know, people posting videos of themselves online sort of, I mean, people always talk about how terrible it is, but really it's, it's also a way of being seen for people who don't really have 
a lot of power in the when you think about the people who are covered in in you know in the press which brings me to another question i wanted to ask you know but people making videos of themselves it's just you know they're trying to have that relationship and trying to have that feeling and trying to have that light pulled upon them um and the other question i wanted to ask you is um with the advent of you know like 24 hour coverage i a lot of people feel and i'm i guess i count myself in this category that the that the press in general is actually a constituency that has its own kind of agenda. And I'm not saying that it's the same for all type, you know, obviously we have a left and the right, so it's not exactly the same. Um, but can you guys maybe address that a little bit? Cause I felt like that's something that's not acknowledged, but it became really evident during our prior administration and the way that our government was covered is that the just what i said that the press has actually has a is a constituency and has an agenda for keeping you know interest in what it's doing you know from the general public i mean for me i think well, i'm i'm john i don't know if you want to take it first or if you want me to jump in with my thoughts no no please yeah no take it okay. take it first so i think for me when i look at what the role of the press is it would be absolutely false to say that no one, that the press doesn't have biases. Of course it does, because it's run by humans and humans have biases. And there is not one human being on earth that does not come into a job, a story, having some preconceived notion about it. The goal though, is to be able to recognize those biases and to be able to, you know, be honest and transparent about those biases, in, you know, in particular, and then to do a job of telling the story and letting the story go where it's going to. And I think that does the press have agendas? Yes. And I think especially with the increase over, you know, with the 24-hour news cycle and all of these things that we've seen over the past few decades, there was a lot of space filling when it came to the, you know, the stories. You have the news and there's only so much of like the news you can recycle. So you have to fill time as well. And that's where this whole concept of the talking heads and the opinions and the those things kind of emerge, which has shaped journalism increasingly towards being, you know, this purveyor of an agenda based on the network or the publisher of your um, specific news outlet. But if we're going to actually look at what I think journalism should be, and I think this is one of the joys of being able to do the teaching part of it and being able to run my own newsroom um, through this, which allows me to sort of have a say in what things go, is to be able to understand that, yes, there may be an, a fundamental agenda, right, of some type. But at the end of the day, the stories have to be told the way they are are meant to be told. And it's not always in light or in response to something that we believe. So I think that, you know, the press has, a you know, is a constituency to some level, but I think more than that, it has a constituency and that, that is the public. It's not the government. It's not, it's basically to get this information out to everyone and allow people to make the decisions, even if you don't like the decisions that they make. And that is really coming back to, you know, prison journals in particular, my goal is not necessarily with our writers to have them reach the echo chamber who already agrees with them or already sympathizes with them. For me, when we talk to our writers, what we say is your goal is to reach that one you know, person out there who absolutely does not care. And yet something you wrote, some story that you told, some you know, incident that happened hit a nerve with them, where for that moment, they're like, wow. I never thought about that. And maybe that is going to lead, maybe that's going to be a one moment of clarity and then they move on. Or maybe it's going to like put a seed into their mind of trying to know more about this and, and having that connection with, you know, people inside. As you're talking about the people who do do those videos and some people are very upset. Why are they doing TikTok dances? For me, that's about connection. Right. It's about connecting with people outside of those prison walls. And I think journalism is the ultimate connector. If we can do it in a way that sometimes it's going to result in blowback. Sometimes you're not going to get the response that you wanted, but you're still going to reach people. And sometimes you are going to reach someone that you didn't anticipate. So for me, I think that is the larger goal. And this is something I could talk about forever because I got opinions on this. <laughs> and it's something I feel very strongly, but it's something I really try to... Um, to put with our, our writers as well that we um, that we both publish and train. And John, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I believe you know there's different outlets. There's we're in America. We have a whole bunch of platforms. 
people live in their silos and they have they, have, they get their news from and from different publications or outlets but I think if we're being honest, I mean, I think, I think left-leaning folks, you know, kind of like, you know, run the media. I mean, if you think <laughs> of the most prestigious, <laughs> I think if you if you think of the most prestigious publications in America, right? I mean, it's a, it's a left-leaning agenda. So, I mean, I think it's you know just trying to be, you know, biased. Not that I'm no <laughs> no being embraced by the right, but like you know, I think. <laughs> I think uh, I think if we're being honest, like it's it's uh, you think New Yorker, the Atlantic, right. the New York Times, Times the, yeah. you know, the Washington Post, these right. are the heavy hitters, like right? right. And these are all these are these all these they all have an agenda, and it's a progressive agenda for the most part. With you know one, you know I I, I agree with. I'm a guy that's in prison in America. I mean I, I agree with it, but even then they sort of uh, they don't let voices you know get in there that are a little too radical. Right. Mumi in in Philadelphia, he's yeah. you know. He's, yeah, he's a he's a he's from a different era. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ain't letting him get into the New York Times. They ain't letting him write for the Atlantic, right? So yeah. I, I mean, I think we all we all have our voices where we we box people out, um, and uh, and we can talk about this for forever. You know, forever. <laughs> so I know you guys have known each other for a while. So um, one of you, feel free to jump in and explain how that is. Okay. Well, it's funny. Um, John and I have known each other for about five years now, I think. And so our friendship actually predates uh, the founding and even like the, I think, real conceptualization of Prison Journalism Project. Uh, We met um, in 2008 when I was was, um, on a fellowship at uh, at Harvard for the Knight Neiman Visiting Fellowship to do this, to learn how to uh, teach incarcerated writers how to be journalists, to kind of learn from people who are already doing it. And as part of that work, I um, I wound up meeting John. I heard a lot about him. I'd read all of his stuff. And so I was going to be doing an interview for him for my project, but also um, I was writing an, an article about why we need prison journalism. So I believe, John, you were at Sing Sing then, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, you so, came to visit me there. Yeah. I did, and I didn't know him <laughs> at all. And, um, you know, I show up at Sing Sing, and I, I've been to various prisons. I had never been to Sing Sing, and that that's an experience to, you know, to walk in to Sing Sing, which is a very different feel <laughs> than some other prisons. And it's very kind of like, I don't know, it's very heavy. Right. And so um, I walked in, and I go inside to meet John, and I'm like five feet tall on a good day. Right. And, and John is a very tall man. <laughs> so I, I walk in and he gets up and he's just like towering over me. And it was, it was great. It was supposed to be a one hour, I think, interview. I think we wound up talking for three hours and somewhere in there realized that we were roughly, um, I think we we're the same age. And I think we roughly grew up in the same neighborhood. So in Brooklyn, right? In Brooklyn. Yes. It was very strange. And like, um, we just really connected. And I remember, um, telling him about this work I wanted to do. And I, I mentioned to him, you know, why I was interested in prison journalism, but also that I really, eventually I wanted to, to teach this on a national level. I wanted there to be journalism coming out of like every prison across the country. And, you know, he was really excited about it. He's also a realist. And so he was just like, well, that's going to be really difficult, Shaheen. And I'm like, I know, but I'm going to, I'm going to make it work. You watch, it's going to happen. And it did. Um, We officially launched a few years later and John is on our board of advisors. So it's kind of come full circle. Uh, Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was because he had taken a class as part of the PJP. I did not realize. No, he predated, I I mean, he was somebody that very early on, like I would talk to on the phone and, you know, when we started doing Prison Journalism Project, I would run things by him and say, hey, you know, does this work? Does this make sense? He's written stuff for us um, to basically help others. But yeah, John, do you remember it any differently? You can totally make fun of me. No, no. Yeah. You had gotten that fellowship and it was just about prison journalism and it was about, you know, I think you went to the Marshall Project and you were like, who's doing it, right? And, yeah. and it kind of pointed, you know, uh, me out and then you just came to visit. And, and uh, I think it's interesting to, to, to sort of like contextualize like the history of prison journalism, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think, well, we're, I mean, I think it's just like, so we, we were at a time in 2018 and it's just like, I'm, I'm doing this in New York on a freelance level, right? right. And I'm, I'm landing pieces in, in these different places and, you know, I, at the time I, I was 
uh, yeah, I've been fortunate to just sort of freelance and land these pieces in Esquire and all these different places, just kind of like as a, as a freelancer. And and I think like you know, there was guys also doing great work over in San Quentin, and there these you know they 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 actually foster the craft over there. They have a you know they have a newspaper, the San Quentin News, and they, right. and they teach guys how to be reporters and like kind of like in house. Uh, so it's kind of a little different, like, and you know, they're not getting paid right. for their pieces. It's like an internship. In a way, it's kind of like an internship, right? So it's interesting, right? So it's like because the audience, when we think about rhetorical situation here, their audience is the prison, and there are subscribers too. But that's sort of like, I guess, like a subscriber, sort of like a voracious, the kind of way, like, like, wow, what, what, this is like a newspaper prison, and, right. and perhaps there are, you know, sort of op eds about other things in society too and i imagine they do have that but then there's there's this sort of tapping into society like on the other on the on the other side of america i'm doing this like as a free there isn't there there ain't no you know newspapers here there's nothing and right. it's just publishing and publishing and out and out out for me as a, as a as a freelancer it's just like it's just trying to be a freelancer like 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 other journalists on the outside and and getting paid for my work right. and and uh, you know, sort of negotiating with you know editors, like, and and and, I, and I'm I'm proud to say like that I that I get the same as any other journalist when I negotiate that, and I, and, and I encourage writers across America that write from prison to do the same. And you know, so so there's that, and there's that, and it's like, what 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 does that look like? And and Shaheen was, she kind of got she she went out there and she you know sort of investigated what that looked like. Um, out there, but also before I before I was doing this, and there was Wilbert Rigaud. So mm -hmm. he he was, and she touched on that in her piece too. And this guy, you know, he he was kind of like the first. Yeah, you know, he's this guy is down in Angola. He's a black man on death row. He gets off of death row in the right. 60s. But yeah, he was the man. Yeah, he was the first guy. It was interesting. Like the white guys had the magazine back then in the 70s. Right. And here was this black guy who just got himself off of death row because he was a good writer. And he started landing pieces in like these different places. He started landing pieces in Playboy. And back then, Playboy was like it was a desirable it was, place. It was, it was great writing. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. So the superintendent, if you read his memoir in the Place of Justice, which I which I encourage people to read, and superintendent was smart. They were progressive back then. This was the seventies, believe it or not. Yeah. And they kinda like they, they were like, Ooh, before this guy gets out of control, let's kinda like bring him in. So the superintendent was like, kick the white guys out, was like, put him in there because mm -hmm. do I want and I actually think it's this. Do I want this guy landing pieces in mainstream magazines or do I want to keep them where I could watch them yeah. in the prison magazine yeah. and I think it was the latter and I think it was a deft way of controlling him and I think he knew that he's right. too smart not to but I think the alternative is what yeah. well, but it worked out well for him he had an office he had an outside line they flew him out to conventions they you know they treated him well they treated right. this guy well this is uh I, I trust me when i'm reading that book i'm like this this guy is he's, he's got life in prison and he's <laughs> and they're flying him to conventions right. i just got a fellowship i just got a fellow i'm the only uh, i got a fellowship i'm a galaxy gives fellow they got this convention going on in new york new york city with all these famous people all these fellows and i'm right. like can i go i don't blame you it's like they, yeah. they don't, they don't, i mean so we're in a totally different era Right yeah. Now, right. They, you know who's another fellow? Chesap Odin. This is my. This is a, this right. is a fellow. He's a Galaxy fellow too. This guy's yeah. a DA. He's kind of a former DA. I can't. I can't go with the fellows. Like, and uh, they have like a wellness class. <laughs> they, I want wellness. <laughs> yeah, like they, right. they, they have. They I have, hear you. Uh, they have this whole setup. It's like this guy, Mike Novogratz, and Galaxy, and they they gave me a fellowship, and I'm like. Yeah, that's great. I wish I could go. I wish I could attend. But you know, but anyway, so I you know. No, actually, so you, had, you're uh, touching on a. So, so they had him yeah. flying around, and uh, he he was that was the rehabilitative era, though. Right. We're not in the rehabilitative. We talk it all. We talk it all up. But uh, I can't even get to an A meeting. Yeah. Forget about uh, wellness. But they let me publish, so they don't bother me. But that's more about you're already in and you've already established yourself. You talk about power earlier in the conversation. Right. Well, Jack Henry Abbott, even though he caused a lot of grief for, for prison writers, but he said it in the belly of the beast, the most powerful prisoner 
there's not the gangbanger, there's not this guy or that guy would be nice. It's the writer. Yeah. That's the most powerful prisoner. So I can ask you then, do you think, is the cycle circular to where we will come around in our concept of incarceration and, and how it needs to function. Will we come back around to the progressive era? And is that what the sort of arts and writing programs, are, are they sort of helping us move along in that way, in that direction or, or not? I think so. I don't want to shoot down the progress that we've made. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of progress being made. There was a heck of a lot of progress being made. When I think of an individual uh, like Wilbert Rudeau and how he was treated in the South, Right. We talk about the South. So yeah, I mean, I see things changing, but um, but I think absolutely the I, you know just the fact that Shaheen was able to create this organization and and have its imprint, Prison Journalism Project, and have and be able to 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 touch all these different prisons. Sure, I think we're on the right path. But again, Shaheen, what do you think? I absolutely think that it's a a time that people are starting to slowly pay attention. I think in some ways it's like five steps forward, 10 steps back. And that's just kind of how the progression goes. But just kind of in agreement with John, I think the fact that we started doing this at this time, I think with the pandemic and all sorts of these other issues, people on some level started to think about, um, because we were isolated, right? People were isolated. And for the first time, I think there was like this spark a little bit about saying, well, you know, I often heard, oh, my God, I feel like I'm in solitary. And all my my guys in solitary, my men and women in solitary, are like, oh, you don't know what solitary is. That's not solitary. But the fact that it was even for this moment where this is not right or this is not normal and this is not OK, that kind of even sparked um, for us because we took off. We launched right in the beginning of the pandemic, April 2020. And I think what really helped us at that moment was that people were really thinking about just how unjust a lot of the things were. And because they felt like it was unjust for them to be inside and have all of these things stripped away. So I think that, um, I, I do believe that we're on this path. I do think that there's going to be, um, more progress, but I, I feel like it's going to be in fits and starts because now we're coming out of the pandemic and you're going to start seeing people close in a little bit more, right? And so it's going to kind of go back. But I think that it's just about making sure that the voices, John's voice, you know, other people's voices from inside are really made audible and loud and that they take advantage of this momentum that has started because this momentum is there, but we want to make sure that we take advantage of it and kind of accelerate it. And that's what um, what he's doing. That's what we're hoping to do as well. So yeah, fits and starts is sort of my prediction. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you because it was during the pandemic that I first read an article published by someone who was in prison describing how COVID was traveling amongst the population and yeah. in prison. And I was like, wow, I never thought about that. And I, think the, and, I think, and I think the media should be given its credit. I mean, we can knock the media all we want, but like, you know, this past year alone, I mean, I wrote, I wrote spreads for the New York Times Magazine about COVID in prison. Like, right. you, know, you don't really, you know, 10 years ago, you're not, you're not seeing a spread from a dude serving time for murder in the New York Times Magazine. Right. I mean, it's just, it's just not happening. I don't know if it's ever happened, but the point is, it's just, so this year alone, the New York Times has published three different prison writers, right? Right. Me, I've written several articles for the op-ed section, but Chris Blackwell got his first article in the New York Times. Right. Another prison writer about you know, writing about inflation. And, you know, I think that yes. was a great idea. That, a great yes. job. So when you start seeing media... Uh, embracing folks. Look, look, you know, as, as much as I don't know if I have this career for not Bill Keller leaves the New York Times in 2014. He started right. the Marshall Project. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's track this for a moment here. You know, they the Marshall Project opens in November of 2014. I was one of the I sort of opened the life inside section that started uh, and, you know, it you know, starts taking off and, and a lot of voices start uh, to be, to be heard. And it's, it's so, so the media, um, has been, uh, welcoming and, you know, sort of, you know, you know, uh, publishing incarcerated voices for the past eight, you know, eight, I would say consistently for the past eight years, the Marshall project, their partnerships with, 
other publications and now the prison journalism project is partnering with other publications and doing that you know on a very isolated in a very isolated way like they're yeah. just fostering prison writers yeah. and helping their voices be heard the monster project let's be clear they have a life inside section right or once a week they'll publish somebody and that's not always somebody that's incarcerated but it's somebody that's usually somebody that's incarcerated and i help a lot of guys get published in here too and then they've been getting a lot of traction too but that they're they're a professional you know with they they hire professional journalists and reporters that that, that have to you know prison and jail and criminal justice beat right. and it's not about formerly incarcerated people although they do hire them but prison journalism project and shaheen could speak to this more specifically uh speaks to and fosters the voices and teaches them craft. There's two parts, and Shaheen runs the teaching part, and, mm -hmm. and Yakari, uh, her colleague, was the editor-in-chief of the publishing, and, and, and they partner with other publications, and they do a great job with that. Yeah, no, there is, and there's definitely a difference between somebody kind of parachuting in and trying to get a feel of, the, of your beat, so to speak, John, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and as opposed to somebody who's actually living it, writing. And and so I actually want to ask you, because that makes me think about um, our obsession with something I know you're writing about with true crime, with true crime. And I, and I, I will count myself among those people. There are those programs that I, for some reason, I watch. Um, I'm not going to lie. I watch, I cannot watch Law and Order anymore. That show is done for me, which... Uh, because I was a huge Law and Order fan, I cannot watch it anymore since I started doing this work. But I, I will be watching the occasional serial killer, true crime. Right? Yeah, I st I will still I can still do Law and Orders. I just think of them as pure fiction. Yeah. So you know what I mean? It's like watching an old movie from the forties. It, it doesn't. <laughs> I don't. It's not real, so I don't take it that way. But I'm interested in the track where we're we're getting more interested in reforming our carceral system. And at the very same time, we are obsessed with true crime. And, and I'm wondering, if is it be partially because we are used to consuming dramatic fare about crime in that law and order format where it's all wrapped up like in an hour? And, and, I, and I noticed that in some cases they kind of structure the resolution of the crime so that it seems like you're, you are actually getting resolution and within like one hour or two, you know, the sort of Dateline 2020 format. Is it because we feel like we need that or is it is it something else? Or are we just having a purient interest in the human where it's like, yes, we must always keep our dark side like right next to us, you know, for some other reason? For me, you know, I do talk about that in my um in my classes is why I teach a media and mass incarceration class. And we talk and, you know, all of my students are really interested in me. I go, how many of you watch true crime and all the hands go up. And I think part of it is this whole concept of darkness. And, you know, in journalism, we have this thing, the saying called if it, if it bleeds, it leads. Right. So it's, that, right. it's that natural sense of like, you know, curiosity about something that people like, you know, want to know about would never want to happen to them, but almost takes sort of this, this pleasure, this weird kind of like this weird sort of in, interest in this really terrible thing that happens to other people. And then the way these documentaries, the way these shows go, there is like some kind of, you know, resolution or this movement towards catching the bad guys. So it, it kind of, even though these are true stories, I often find a lot of them are, are structured that way, as you were mentioning. For me, you know, I think that is just kind of a nod to this darker side that we have where we take this interest in bad things happening to other people and almost have the sense of relief that we're not those people that have had that happen to us. So we can count our blessings, but at the same time, take this interest in that. That being said, I think the fact that we are at this level where you have the, the true crime podcast, you have the true crime documentaries, the television shows, you know, all of these things, books becoming such a part of life. I think in some ways it's a great time to be able to put forward the voices of incarcerated writers, because I think there's already this interest, but it's very one-sided kind of where the focus once again is very much about the crime, the lead up to the, the trial, you know, the conviction or the not conviction, whatever. And then we stop wondering. I think that's that moment where having writers who are inside can provide the insight into what goes on 
after. You know, that maybe that is where the remorse happens, or maybe do we treat people who, you know, who've done bad things equally bad, you know, you know, inside, and is that justice? And it makes us have these answers, or at least try to answer in our heads or, or raise the questions. So for me, um, I feel like the true crime era is really popular right now, but it's a really good, interesting time to start bringing these stories and these writers forward so that the second half of that tale can continue. And that's why why I think we've also seen an interest in people that are reading our stuff or are interested in my classes and the and the trainings that we're doing. Right. And John, you had a lot to say. Go for it. I mean, Shaheen kind of she 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 nails it. It's this sort of idea when we think of true crime, traditional true crime, and there's different facets of true crime. You have true innocence. I mean, they say the new resurgence started in 2014 you know, with serial, and that's really like a true innocence kind of thing, uh, wow. where you know, there's this podcast trying to sort of showcase a potentially wrongful conviction, which it appears it was, this guy right. uh, eventually got out. That's true innocence, though, right? But traditional true crime is this idea of just reliving, you know, usually a white man killing a white woman are the stars of true crime. I think right. it's interesting to talk about, you know, what the face of true crime looks like and how does that affect... Yes. Um, you know, black and brown folks who were disproportionately affected by the criminal justice system, right? Exactly. And, and 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 how it is. The, I mean, Lindsay Webb is a is a is a is you know she's I, I quote her in my book. She's wrote, she's written a paper about this, and basically it's, it's yeah you're watching all of this, but it's kind of affecting you, and you're being punitive, and you're going to sleep at night. Um, I mean, my ex-wife she watches it, and she has this bell that she puts on the back door of her she's like an apartment there's like a back door and like if anyone it's on it's on the it's on the knob i was like why do you have a bell on the knob she's like if it jingles like i know somebody's trying to break in and get yes. me yeah i was like you think somebody's gonna try to break in and get you and she was like I, and i was and she, i was like she's like no i go to sleep at night i watch the true crime and i go so i'm like jesus christ and you and you, and you have a bell and i was like as no, because it's, it's yeah. Anyway, so it's just, it's, it's just. So this is where we're at, right? Yeah. And it's just, and these are people that are connected to some. I mean, she and this is somebody that was married to me. I mean, we're cool. Like right. she's okay with me conveying that uh, anecdote. But so, so you know, it's it's interesting where we're at to think to make the argument that it, it creates a, a more punitive uh, feeling and in, in, in a swath of mostly women that 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 uh, a large uh, that watch true crime. Crime. Yes. And how does that affect people? Because people vote, you know, and you vote and it's just like, and you know, you, you may go to bed subconsciously thinking, oh, thank God for them prisons, but the needle <laughs> falls away. So it's this idea that that we need prisons. We, and, it's, and it's not a, and it's, it's not something that is like explicitly sort of, um, you know, and it's like a nut graph of a journalistic piece. And this is why you should do this and read this. And, and right. it's, it's kind of like an unconscious effect. But I think what's more is like we got here from, you know, true crime, you know, was in the literati. And this, is, this, yes. this, this started with something gorgeous writing by Truman Capote. Mm -hmm. And, yes. you, know, and, and, you know, I have a lot of things to say about Truman Capote, too. You know, he never, you know, he got close to this. Like he was, he's sort of uh, respected for his really for his empathy but you know he kind of he wanted them to be hanged exactly yeah he wanted his subjects to be hanged for his book to mean something uh for his book to have an ending he needed them to hang you know so that's something because he really because he really got close to those guys but in the book in real life he got close to them but in the book you, you don't see that no you don't and and in the executioner's song for example norman Mailer, mm -hmm. you know he doesn't he wins the pulitzer for this book but he doesn't even really know these guys right he, he had like a guy just report everything for him and then he wrote because he's norman nailer and he has right. gorgeous prose he, he, he took you he, he dumbed down the prose and took you out midwest and he and he, he he's just very very like it's this very very like you know just simplified gorgeous prose that you could just kind of like feel the life of this guy yeah. and kind of see like just the simplicity of his life and how he could just be impulsively just to do this horrible thing of yeah. Gary Gilmore and kill these people just because he's just impulsive and empty and then he gets executed and and it's just, so these are stories have and we ask why this why now I mean we have a lot of outlets for media right now so 
Yeah. Uh, like like Shaheen was talking about podcasting and documentaries. And, but where I kind of come in with this and say, hey, nobody's doing this. And this is why I'm writing my book. The tragedy of true crime is that, to, to Shaheen's point, you know, traditional true crime takes us up to, you know, how do you do it? Why do you do it? You know, uh, and, and we, you know, you get the arrest, you hear from the victims, which is very important. Mm-hmm. And and you also and, and then we and then we get the, you know, the crime fighters, the prosecutors getting justice. And then that's it. The story ends there. But but what of it all? And 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 what do we do with what we did when we go away? Yeah. And how do we? And how do we? And, and what does that look like? And I would I would you know I, that's what I and that's 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 why I wrote my book. I follow four different people uh, who went away for for killing, and you know I answer the traditional questions, but I also I also uh, tap into you know the, the ones that I propose to, uh, and I weave myself through the story. So while I'm asking those questions to my peers, I'm asking yeah. myself, and I don't think anybody else has, has done that, or there hasn't really been, you know, that sort of reliable narrator. I have um, a piece by John here that I'm going to read the first paragraph of. So this is from the um, July 9th, 2019 edition of the New York Review of Books. The title is The Murderer, the Writer, and the The Murderer, the Writer, the Reckoning by John J. Lennon. And above the, before the paragraph, it says, at Jack Abbott's trial, Norman Mailer pleaded with the press, quote, at least let Abbott become a writer. Then he said, quote, a democracy involves taking risks. End quote. Reading this made me feel envious and a bit confused. Wasn't the idea to reaffirm literature itself, in Mailer's words, quote, as a human expression that will survive all obstacles? And I'm just going to mention quickly, there's a book that just came out actually about the life of Norman Mailer that I just read a review of that makes me want to read, go back and read him again. Okay, so um, here's John's writing now. On February 10th, 2002, in a New York State prison cell, the best-selling author and twice-convicted killer Jack Abbott hanged himself with an improvised noose. That same day, the body of the man I murdered washed ashore on a Brooklyn beach in a nylon laundry bag. My reason for connecting these two events is to try to account for my crime, to understand better why I did it, and to describe what Abbott's legacy as a prison writer of an earlier generation has meant for me as a prison writer in this generation. So, John... Yeah. So, um, well, I mean, there's a lot there, right? There is uh, a, a there's a tremendous amount there, and I love the way that you link the t- the temporal links, the reaching back into time. There's a constant like shift, temporal shift, where you're talking about something that happened in the past, and and then then something else that happened in the past, and then linking that to the present. Well, thank you. I mean, I mean, look, it's it's tough to write. It's a, it's it's a it's it's a stylistic, you know, um, thing I'm doing. I mean, it struck me when I was researching. You know, um, that date struck me mm. uh, when I was researching Jack Abbott uh, over the years, and it always stuck with me. And I was like, oh, he hung himself that that same day, and then and that and that day, I, I had noticed in, in the investigation that that was that was the day. It was February tenth. I mean, look, it's conflicting to sort of, uh, you know, do this, this, use this in a literary way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, uh, yeah, I kind of, it's a stylistic thing too, like where, so one of my favorite uh, uh, writers, Emmanuel Career, I had mentioned, he mm-hmm. does this in The Adversary. It's his, it's his opening lines where he says, when uh, Jean-Claude Ramond was, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, you know, was out killing his wife and kids and then his mother and father i was uh taking my um my son to parent teacher meeting um in that moment you know so and this is something that's a little bit more visceral right Mm -hmm. and this is and this is what this is what this is the heft of the prison writer this is the heft of somebody that's incarcerated that writes about something that's that's this is what we live with and this is what this is what it is so in that in that essay so right from the start is we know we're going to be dealing with some heavy 
heavy issues. And, yeah. and there's always a, and there's always a measure of conflict when you 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 inject this sort of literary um, style uh, to this, and it's and it's. But I think conflict is also one of the most important elements of, of any story. So there's a lot, you know, there's a lot with that. But Jack Abbott, you know, he's a complicated guy. You know, he's, he's a guy that probably set prison writers back. That, the whole purpose of me writing that piece was to sort of like, you know, hash out my issues with Jack Abbott. Right. And he's a guy that, you know, he was sort of mentored by Norman Naylor, who was a literary titan. You know, and and he helped this guy get out, and you know, in six weeks he he killed again, and this is an anomaly. And he's not an anomaly because he's a good writer. He's an anomaly because he killed again. Right. That's why he's an anomaly. Um, and yeah. also, you know, it affected prison writers for the next generation. Exactly. It put a dark cloud over them, and I think that we still have a dark cloud over us because of that. Yeah. I think I even do. Let me try. There's one final question that I wanted to ask both you and Shaheen. Um, and because one thing I grasped from the prison journalism uh, website and also from some of your writing that the issue of aging in prison is becoming an issue. And I wanted Shaheen to talk about it a little bit. And then I wanted, John, I wanted you to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there's... <laughs> I mean, I just wrote a piece in a, in a local, you know, uh, Times Union up here in Albany, just about <laughs> folks, uh, you know, sort of, they, they have a bill here in New York about, you know, people 55 uh, being able to go to the board. And it, it's just, you don't even have to have the college degrees and all these, like, certain certain elitist sort of prisoners kind of like, you know, can count all these accomplishments. But just being a human being. Right that is 50 something or 60 years old. It's just, you've aged out of, of, of criminality. And mm. in the DSM, if we, if we, if we, if we, if we go line by line and antisocial behavior, you know, that's that thing where they, you know, like to call everybody a sociopath or a psychopath. It's, that's mm. the pejorative we use in society, but it's, it's actually called antisocial behavior in, this, in, in the DSM. And even in that, there's an exception that says, there's really no cure for this, for this personality, right? But it's, if anything, they can age out of it when they get older, right? So I found, I found that fascinating, right? So it's, it's, it's this idea, especially when, when we go to sleep at night to, uh, to these, to these narratives of psychopaths and true crime and what, what everybody, including my ex-wife, likes to go to sleep uh, at night to. And look, I used to watch Day Ones too when I had a TV and myself. But we need to know that 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 people, you know, even even though they're not sort of beaming with with humility and, and, and beautiful personalities after living in a, in a in a prison cell for 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. you probably won't want them over Thanksgiving. But they're not going to be um, hurting people. Right. And I think we should really consider that. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it becomes a lot less about them mm-hmm. than it does about you all. Yeah. That's what I would say. Yeah. About us and our fears about what that means. I think that's really powerful yeah. what he's saying there. I mean, right now, Prison Journalism Project has um, just, just launched this new uh, project that we called The Graying of America's Prisons, which is which was undertaken by our editorial side, by our um, newsroom, and really spearheaded by our associate editor, uh, Wyatt Stainer. Basically, just this beautiful project where we are talking about what it means to be, from the point of view of the incarcerated writers, what it means to age in inside and tackling different aspects of that. And what it really kind of makes you, as you're reading them, it really sort of makes you realize that we send people away and we're saying we're doing this in part. Yes, there's a punitive aspect to it, but we're saying, oh, you know, it's to prevent them from being a danger to society. But as, as John was saying, I mean, people over the time, as you're aging, you're less likely to be a danger to society. And even more so, I mean, it becomes less about even that. It becomes more about, I just want to keep punishing you. And I I want right. this to be your life because this happened. And it really comes down to that purpose of, is that what we consider justice? And I mean, is it fair or is it right to say that some somebody who committed some a crime, even at like, let's even get past the 25 age where the brain hasn't matured yet, but even at like 27, 28, 29, are they the same person 
that they are at, you know, 30 years from now, 25 years from now, I'm not the same person that I was 20 years ago. And I, when I look at that, I'm reading these stories that we are, that we're publishing on Prison Journalism Project, the vast majority of these people are, you know, will say they are not the same person. And at this point, it really becomes less about, um, keeping society safe and more about Mm -hmm. society feeling good about punishment. And that I think that is one of the main issues that, you know, I feel very strongly about Um, this whole concept of these insane sentences, hundred years. I mean, my best friend, who's the reason, you know, I started prison journalism project, he's sentenced to 150 years when he was 25. I mean, like these are new kind of long-term kind of crazy things to make people feel good because they're, they're large numbers. But what does that mean? You, You know, in the past 30 years was considered a life sentence. In other the world, mm-hmm. 30 years, 20 years are considered a life sentence. So it really has less to do, I think, with keeping society safe, but just really helping us to feel good about putting the bad people away. And I think that's really what it comes down to for me and in just reading the work that I'm reading right now. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta I gotta run, guys. This okay. was a pleasure talking It to was everybody. really thank you so much. Thank you thank both. You, John. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Kathy, Shaheen. You guys have a great day, and uh, everybody listening. Thanks. Bye bye. So, Shaheen, I wanted to ask you: Are you still teaching as part of PJP? Yes, absolutely. Actually, PJP um, is divided into two parts. We're one organization, but we have both a newsroom, which is the PJP newsroom run by our my co-founder, Yukari Kane, who is also our chief executive officer. And the other part is PJP J School, which is a training um, arm, where basically where we do all the training and I run that. So I'm the co-founder and chief education officer um, in charge of that. And what we do uh, is we started, you know, over the last year, we'd started doing small cohorts. So we launched a pilot that we were teaching report the whole concept of reported essays to um, 12 incarcerated writers from around the country, uh, men and women, who we were doing um, with a, a group of faculty members, PJP faculty members who have you know long history, both as journalists and as um, educators, to make this material and create it for them and you know get assignments back and sort of train them in the journalism. So we were able to go through our first cohort for that. We are now, um, we've just launched an advanced nonfiction uh, writing workshop that I'm co-teaching with uh, Bill Keller, who um, John mentioned as well. So Bill Keller is um, the chair of our board of advisors, but he's also the founding editor-in-chief of the Marshall Project. And he is also teaching this class with me. And that's for a handful, about eight students who we um, selected based on an application. And we're going to be working much more one on one. But yeah, we um, and I also teach inside out classes. So I bring students from Penn State into carceral facilities here in Pennsylvania to, you know, to learn alongside incarcerated students um, in journalism and and media. And we are about to I'm very excited about this. We're about to. I believe in March, we're about to launch our first uh, handbook for uh, prison journalism that we will, it's a 200 page uh, handbook that we are creating for our incarcerated writers that really goes through the nuts and bolts of um, how to be a journalist, how to get published with us, but how to get published with other places, how to pitch all of it in this like this really great book that I'm really proud of. Yeah, I know. And it sounds like they could also learn how to publish like a newspaper themselves inside Absolutely. um awesome and i've actually taken the inside out training yes. i was the last in-person class before the pandemic i think i was the next class um so it, it was we had an unusually um <laughs> vibrant cohort because we were able to have people from the uk and and um you know we weren't restricted oh, yeah. in terms of area so uh yeah it was an intense experience and, and i'm still I'm reading some of the materials from it, so. I'll also use the materials, too, in the classes I teach, yeah. It's a great program. You've been listening to an episode of Outside Inside Radio, brought to you by Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. We are based at San Diego State University and have additional partnerships with three California State University campuses in Humboldt, Fullerton, and San Bernardino, and with UC Irvine. 
Prison Arts Collective is a project of California Arts and Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media created as an extension of our distance learning project in response to COVID-19. Thank you for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Outside Inside Radio.